guy who grows the crazy hairdo and speaks with the Australian accent and plays the guitar. That's, so once that starts, you won't see me again, which for some of you say, amen, all right. So, but I, I'm excited about what the Lord is doing to, to bring kids to our church. And, and, of course, we know that most decisions that are made to follow Jesus happen before age 18, and even more happen before age 10 or 12. And so that's our focus. That's our goal is not just to entertain kids and give them a fun place to be. We'll use that to teach them about Jesus. And so we're looking forward to that getting started. Um, Shauna, can you help me out as we get going this morning? I've asked Shauna to sort of be our crash test dummy this morning, though you're not a dummy, right? Okay. Would anybody say that you are? Probably. Probably. <laughs> Drew? Okay. All right. Okay. If you can, I've got, I've got a blindfold and I've got some earplugs. Now, the way this works, you kind of kind of squeeze those. Promise, I didn't just use these right before I showed up here, so they don't have any earwax on them. I, I scraped all that off. But anyway, if you could put those in your ears. Where's the hair? That's not going to work. I'll let you mess up your own hair so you can tie that around yourself. not how this is supposed to go. You're not supposed to be able to hear me. Remember we talked about this. Play along. You're, you're messing the whole thing up. We just got to close in prayer now. Go home. Mess the whole sermon up. No, anyway. You know, it's interesting. And I told Shauna earlier, I said, look, I need you to help me, but I'm not going to make you crash into a bunch of stuff. All right? I promise. I'm not going to try to embarrass you in front of everybody and make you fall over the pew and, you know, and all that. But, you know, if, if I were to ask Shauna to stand here during the, during the sermon, Number one, she wouldn't really know if I was serious, whether I really wanted her to do that or not. She would probably say, well, okay, I'll stand here. But she, in effect, has had her senses dulled, as you can tell. There's something around her eyes that keeps her from seeing where she ought to be going. There's something in her ears that keeps her from hearing, or at least she's supposed to be pretending she's not hearing me. And And then we spin around a little bit, and she has some idea of where she's pointing because she knows that I'm facing the crowd, but if I were to move away after spinning her around, she would have very little orientation on where she is. And so it would be an awkward sort of experience for her. If I ask her to stand like this for the entire sermon, I walk around, she really has no idea where I am. Maybe she would try to find her way back to her seat and say, this is ridiculous. I'm going to stand here all day long in a blindfold with earplugs in my ears and all that. Or maybe as she attempted to go back to her seat, she might hit the first pew instead of making it to the second one and wind up flying into the second one. It might be a little bit dangerous. And certainly, if if anything, it's annoying. It's not something that anybody voluntarily would say, hey, let me just walk around and and let me put this blindfold on and these earplugs in and just kind of see how it goes in front of all these people. Let me fall flat on my face. But you know, the interesting thing about it is, that even though none of us would say, you know, that, that just seems really exciting. Let me, let me do that. Many of us, many of us in this room go through life exactly this way. 
Many of us go through life with a blindfold on and earplugs in and get spun around by the things of life, have no orientation whatsoever, have no idea which way we're headed, and it's frustrating, and it's disheartening, and it makes us angry, and sometimes maybe we don't even know it. Maybe we just sort of fall our way through life, and we think, why do I keep falling over and over again? The truth is that some of us go through life blind and deaf because we have turned ourselves off to the Word of God. We have ignored and have blinders on and earplugs in. We've ignored the Word of God. The one thing that can take the blindfold off and take the earplugs out and give us direction to where we need to go. The one thing that can give us some stability to make us feel not like we're going to fall down and not quite so silly as you still stand here. I'm just dragging this thing out to see how long you'll stand here. But did I tell you I was going to do that? No, okay. So, but the truth is that many of us, though we would say, well, that's kind of goofy. Why would anybody do that? Many of us go through life that way. No communication from God whatsoever. We don't see Him. We don't hear from Him. And we wonder why life isn't exactly what we thought God had promised it would be. You can take all that stuff off. Thank you for your help. Isn't she great? Wonderful. Good job. Nobody laughed at you at all. We were all laughing with you. That's right. We've been in a series, and we're continuing today, about the fact that Jesus called his church not to just merely survive, but to be unstoppable. And we've seen over the last several weeks certain elements that went into this call to be unstoppable. And this morning, we're going to look at one that is absolutely vital to both our lives individually and our lives collectively as a church. And so... As you think about going through life blind and going through life deaf, it doesn't have to be that way. And I want us to look in Acts chapter 2. If you've got your Bible open, just turn there and hold your place. And we'll look at it here in just a second. <clears throat> but I'll kind of catch you up on the story just a little bit. We, we'll pick this up at the end of Acts chapter 2. What's happened so far is that Jesus in Acts chapter 1 has ascended. He's gone back up into heaven. His earthly ministry is over. Uh, Forty days before that, he was, was crucified and then was raised again. And so then he spends 40 days on earth talking to the disciples, meeting with them, showing them that he is indeed alive, giving them proof, letting them see his scars, and, and, and telling them what it is he wants them to do. And so in Acts chapter 1, he ascends into heaven, and he tells them, here's what's going to happen. I'm leaving, but you are going to be my witnesses. You're the ones who are going to reach the world. You realize Jesus never traveled more than about 30 miles from his hometown. And so it was up to the disciples to carry on his mission. And that mission, he said, would be unstoppable, known as the church. Both all believers connected together and then local bodies just like this one. And so Jesus ascends in Acts chapter 1 and goes back to be with God. And, and the disciples from that point go to Jerusalem like Jesus had told them to do. And they wait for what Jesus said was going to be an incredible move of God, something they had never experienced before. And, and then the Holy Spirit, it says in Acts chapter 2, the very beginning of it, it sounds like this, this huge rushing wind, like a tornado ripping through a building. Here comes the sound of the Holy Spirit. And then he begins to give them the ability to speak to other people and, and present to them the truth about Jesus. And then later on, we see that, that the people that responded to that thought one of two things. Boy, one, number one, I've got to hear more about this. These people can speak in my language. What's going on? They're reaching out to their community. And then secondly, other folks thought, well, they're just crazy or they're drunk. Peter stands up, the apostle Peter, who before denied Jesus, scared to death, 
that he was going to be crucified with Jesus, stands up in front of all the Jewish people that killed Jesus and says, let me tell you what's going on. You know that Messiah you've been looking for for hundreds of years? He showed up. You didn't like him. You killed him. And he was raised again. Jesus is that Messiah. And it says at the end of this sermon that Peter gave that, that the Jewish people standing there were pierced to the heart, it says. They were, they were broken. They, they were contrite. It's a Bible, a Bible word that's used. They were just, wow, what do I do? They, Peter says, repent and believe and be baptized. And it says, on that day, 3,000 people gave their lives to Jesus. There's no way Peter could have ever planned for that sort of response to his sermon. But the Holy Spirit was moving. And it was beginning this unstoppable movement that is still going today. And so we, we'll pick up the story right after those 3,000 people had just joined the church. Imagine in one day, after one sermon, 3,000 people don't transfer their membership. They get saved and join the church just like that. Amazing. And so what would the disciples do? What would be their response? In churches today, our response may be, we need a bigger building. Good grief. We got to add on. We just need to tear this place down, build a brand new. We need to relocate. We need to do this. We need to start a new ministry. Our response may be a little bit different than what the response is of the apostles and disciples in that day. And so we pick it up in Acts chapter 2, verse 42. <clears throat> let, me, let me read to you verse 41, and we'll continue with verse 42. So those who accepted his message were baptized, and that day about 3,000 people were added to them. And they devoted themselves, not, not to building programs, not to new ministries, not to some fancy deal that they were trying to create, or not to trying to gain 3,000 more people. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayers. It's no accident that Luke, the guy who wrote the book of Acts, includes this as, here's what they were known for. They had 3,000 people one day. Here they come. But what they're known for is not trying to build something, not trying to go out and get more people just to equal that one incredible day that only God was in control of. Instead of that, their focus, what they were known for, was devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayers. The word devoted there, you, you, you probably have a pretty good idea of what that means. It simply means just being steadfast and sort of immovable toward a, toward a cause, toward an end, a goal, where you're heading. The apostles' teaching, as we'll look at today, was a body of material that was considered authoritative because it came directly from the apostles who had literally walked around on the earth with Jesus. You realize that the New Testament, all of it, one of the, one of the ways that, that the New Testament uh, has come to us, one of the criterion, so to speak, for uh, recognizing it as a direct word from God was the fact that each one of those books in the New Testament was written by an apostle who had a personal interaction with Jesus Christ. Even Paul, who wrote half the New Testament, he said, well, he didn't even like Jesus. No, but on the road to Damascus, he had a personal interaction with Jesus, which qualified him as an apostle. So these teachings are handed down to us as the New Testament. And so when we, when we say the words apostles teaching, we're not talking about some random sermon that they would give each Sunday. This was directly what we know now as the New Testament. And so uh, it included, obviously, this teaching included a compilation of, of the words of Jesus, uh, sort of a biography of his life to an extent, his, his crucifixion, the events there, his resurrection, and so on. And, and, and despite what may have, 
have separated these apostles. What may have tried to come between them, the one thing they came back to that centered all of them on a clear focus, here's what we're about, was, was the Scripture. The Word of God passed down through them. And so we have in the New Testament an eyewitness account, as did these folks, uh, of what Jesus did and who He was about. And so uh, a biblical church, as we see here in the New Testament in verse 42, loves the Scripture, loves what is taught by those people who were with Jesus. We have the great benefit, of course, of having the entire Scripture. They did not. They, they simply at that time only had the Old Testament to bank on. And later on, as they taught and, and wrote these things down, we now know it as the New Testament. And so uh, we see that a biblical church loves the Scripture. And I, I, I want us to think about this. Why is it that these folks would devote themselves to these apostles' teaching, to the Scripture, to the reading of it, the study of it, the learning of it, living it out? Why is that? And, and I think there, there are two things that I, I want to sort of drop with you today and, and, and help us understand. First of all, why is it that a biblical church, why did these biblical people love the Scripture so much? Well, first, because it's truth. It, it is truth. You know as well as I do that truth in our world today is largely relative, meaning that, well, it may be true for you, but I don't think that's true for me. The truth in a lot of times today is, is determined by the reader of a particular book. Somebody reads the Bible and says, well, I think this is true, and I don't know about that, but this sort of works for me. Truth is a lot today. What works? What, what, what sort of plays out? And instead of saying, is this absolutely true, and as a result it will work, we get it backwards. We say, well, because it works, it must be true. And I'll show you today, hopefully, that because it's true, it, it works. Uh, the Bible is inspired by the Holy Spirit, which simply means that that God himself was the one who was guiding the thoughts and the pen of those biblical writers, helping them understand, here's what I want to get across. Write this stuff down. Remember this. Record these events. And, and so we get what is the inspired Word of God, meaning that there is some human element to it because the writers of the New Testament lived in the first century. So they wrote about things that were going on during that time, but it has been equally an overriding divine element, that this is what God wanted there. He wanted us to be able to read these words today. So it's, it's inspired. It's also very reliable because it's inerrant, which means that, that it, is, it is absolutely what God wanted to say and always true all the time. It is without error. It does not contradict itself. It, it does not play one against the other. The Old Testament is not set against the New Testament. The New Testament simply fulfills everything and completes and expands on everything from the Old Testament. And so it is inerrant. You can trust it. It's reliable. Not only that, but because of those two things, because it's inspired, God said it, because it's inerrant, because you can trust it, it's then authoritative. You can live by it. And so a biblical church will love the, the, the Scripture simply because it's truth. And, and it's truth about God. It's truth about God. You'll see if you're following along in the back of your bulletin, you write some of these things down. We'll roll through them fairly quickly. It's truth about God, who He is. The Bible says that God is the Creator. And He has existed from eternity past and will exist until eternity future. Don't ask me to explain that. I cannot. Anybody that wants to attempt that, you are smarter than me. All I know is the Bible says that. And it is beyond my comprehension, but so are a lot of other things, and yet I take that to, to mean absolutely. He has been, and He always will be, and, and He is the creator of what we see and what we experience. And 
Not only that, but He is, the Bible says, the judge of all that He has created. That one day, each one of us, whether we have believed in Jesus or not, will stand before Him and give an account for our lives. He is the judge. And He is the one that we answer to. Not ourselves, but Him. But not only that, but He's a loving Father, the Bible says, who who wants to adopt each one of us into His family, who sent His Son to die for us. The Bible tells us about God, who He is. Not only that, but what He does, He saves. You realize that the entire Scripture is about redemption, buying back what had wandered off. God is a saving God. He creates, He saves, He provides, protects, He answers His people. It also tells us, the Scripture does, about God, what what He has planned. For those who will trust in Jesus, He has planned eternal life and blessings beyond our wildest imaginations. It also tells us about us. The Scripture not only tells us about God, but about us, why we're here. The Scripture tells us that we were made to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. That's it. That's the reason that you have been created. You have not been created to be beaten down by the world, though you may think that. You've not been created to have a miserable life. You've not been created to make lots and lots and lots of money, and that's it. You've been created to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. The Bible tells us about us while we're here. It also tells us about us, like, why things are messed up. You look around our world, it is a messed up place. The Bible says there is one reason for all that, and it's called sin. It's not because of some evolutionary concept that things will just get worse over time. No, no. It's because of sin. You look in Genesis, and God says, because of sin, let me tell you what's going to happen to your world. Let me tell you what's going to happen to your body. Let me tell you what's going to be the consequences for that. Sin has destroyed everything. It's destroyed our ability even to think and to reason properly, to see God. The Bible says in Romans chapter 1 that those who are apart from God have darkened minds. We don't understand really who God is. So the Bible tells us about us, why we're here to glorify Him, how things got messed up because of our sin. The Bible also tells us what value we have. It's not based upon anything but the fact that we are created by God and that He places value on us and that we are loved by Jesus. The world will try to tell you that you have value based upon what you do for a living or what you did for a living or how many children you have or don't have or what you've done or what you've not done. God says, according to His Word, that the value you have has nothing to do with you. It has nothing to do with me, but everything to do with the fact that we are created by God and that Jesus loves us. That's where our identity is wrapped up. Trust me, and you probably have experienced this. You try to find your identity in your work, and then you get fired and see what happens. See how good you feel about yourself. You try to find your identity in your family, and then things go wrong. You experience divorce or children running from God, and then you, you see how much value you really think you have. We've got to anchor ourselves to the one thing that gives us value, and that is God's Word. We are created by God and loved by Him, and we are someone that Jesus died for. That's what gives us value. The Bible tells us about God. It tells us about us. And then the great thing is it tells us about God and us. Why is there a problem? Well, the Bible says that sin is the problem, that even just one sin, one little slip-up, 
is enough to deserve death because God is perfect and we must be perfect in order to come to Him. I realize that we have a few folks in here who probably would say, or someone would say about them, they think they're perfect. Don't elbow anybody. I know that that's maybe your friends that didn't come today, all right? But we probably have a few folks who would consider themselves to be perfect. But the truth is one sin, the Bible says, is enough that God should punish us for all eternity because we have fallen short of His standard of perfection. And as a result of that, the Bible says we deserve death. And the only way for us to be cleared of the debt that we owe God is for us to either die or for a substitute to be put in our place, for some perfect sacrifice to be made. Only an innocent, perfect person could die for us. Of course, we know from the Scripture that person is Jesus Christ, the very Son of God, God in human flesh. And so we learn about God and us, why there's a problem, because of our sin. And that deserves death. And we learn, how can we make it right? The Bible says over and over in the New Testament, repent and believe. Those words simply mean turn away from what you were doing and place your trust and lean your whole weight on Jesus Christ and Him alone for salvation and Him alone for encouragement and Him alone for direction. The Bible says that in doing those things, turning from that old life, saying, you know what, yeah, I'm a sinner, I've messed up, even if it's just one time, that's enough to keep God away from me. But I'm turning back to the one perfect and innocent sacrifice that can make things right, and that's Jesus Christ. So the Bible tells us the truth about God, about us, about God and us. And that would simply be enough for us to love the Scripture, that we can go to it and we can find the absolute truth. But the great thing about the Scripture is, although it's true, it's not inaccessible or somehow beyond us or way out there sort of truth that we can't do anything with. But because it's true, it's also extremely practical. I think a biblical church loves the Scripture because it's truth and also because it's useful. It's practical. It's valuable. There's a scripture in Psalm chapter 119 that I want you to look at. You'll see it on the screen behind me. And it's interesting that we see here the psalmist writing about the value of the scripture. In verse 9, it says, How can a young man keep his way pure? By keeping your word. Talking to God here. I have sought you with all my heart. Don't let me wander from your commands. The word of God. Those commands. I have treasured your word in my heart so that I may not sin against you. The value of the scripture. Ingesting that. Internalizing that in our lives. So that as a result we can live the right way. There's also a scripture in 2 Timothy. One that some of you may be familiar with. 2 Timothy chapter 3 verses 16 and 17 say this. All scripture is inspired by God. Some of your versions may say it's God-breathed. That's what gives it life. That's what gives it meaning. All Scripture is inspired by God and is profitable or useful or valuable for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be complete for every good work. The Scripture is useful. Write these things down as we go through here. The Scripture is useful, as we see from 2 Timothy chapter, chapter 3, the Scripture is useful for teaching. If you want to write a little definition out to that, that just means helping you know what's right and what's wrong. Isn't it true that no matter how old you get, there are still times when you just think, I'm not really sure what I should do in that situation. I've never experienced this before. They they tell you to to act your age, and you've only got a year to figure out how to do that, and then you've got to learn it all over again. You know, So some of us, even though you may be 80, 85, 96 years old, happy birthday, you may be 
still learning what it means to be taught by God's Word, how to know right from wrong, understanding the will of God. The Bible helps you understand that by teaching. Then the next it says for rebuking. That simply means turning us around. We're going the wrong way. We don't like this part of the Scripture too much. We like the love of God. Boy, we want to focus on that all the time. And you know what? God is loving, and He is love all the time. But isn't it true that in His love, He smacks us in the head sometimes? You ever had your parents? Maybe they loved you so much, and they told you this. I, I, I discipline you because I love you. I think, yeah, right. Who does that? They don't love me. My kids are learning that right now. You know, it's It's interesting. But, you know, the, the truth from God's Word rebukes us at certain times and says, hold on, you keep going down this path, you're not going to like the results of it. Sometimes we can't feel where we've gotten off the path a little bit. I played this past Friday in a golf scramble with one of the golfers from Murray State University. He happens to attend our church. They're playing this morning in a tournament in Mississippi. But he, he told me we were on the course and I had... I was not hitting the ball exactly the way I wanted to, which was exactly like him. You know, he's, he's, he shoots below par, and I'm not quite there. And so he, he began to tell me, hey, do you, do you feel yourself doing this? I said, no. He said, well, you are. You, you're doing this and that. And I'm thinking, no, I don't think I am. Yeah, you are. You know, it's interesting how sometimes even when we don't feel ourselves getting off on a path that's not exactly right, we might read a scripture on a particular day and we think, huh. Well, I, I, I wasn't thinking about that. And the Holy Spirit may speak to you in such a way that He sort of corrects you and, and rebukes you back to, to where you ought to be, even though maybe you didn't quite feel it. You know, as I said, we don't like this part of the Scripture, but the truth is that the guidelines found in the Scripture, right and wrong, go this way, don't go that way, provide freedom and safety, and they provide enjoyment. Think about it. If someone were driving down the road and said, look, I enjoy driving down this road, but I really don't like the rules. I just want to take my half out of the middle, and I don't want to stop at any of the stop signs or traffic lights or anything at all. The rules of the road are there to protect people, to give them a safe driving experience so they can enjoy it. Imagine if there were no rules. The Scripture does for us the very same thing, helping us to see where it is we should take our half, so to speak. Not only rebuking and teaching, but also for correcting. This means setting up what has fallen over. Maybe you've been in a situation before, you just think, my life is just one mistake after another. Or I keep getting knocked down by this same old junk again, and I don't understand where it's coming from. And then you're reading God's Word, and all of a sudden, He picks you up just a little bit. And He sets your feet back on solid ground, and you begin to walk again. He helps you know how to get back up. And the Scripture is not there to kick you, to beat you when you're down, but to encourage you and uplift you. It's there for correcting. Second Timothy also says it's there for training, which simply means helping us know what is our next step. Psalm chapter 119, again, verse 105, says that God's Word, and you don't have to turn there, but it says that God's Word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. You want to know which step to take? What do I do next? God's Word, it says, will be that lamp showing the light. Here's where I need to go. Here's my next step. Leaving here today, some of you may wonder, what on earth do I need to do? God's Word will show you. 2 Timothy also says, sort of in closing in that particular passage, that it's for equipping, for helping us become who God wants us to be, for getting us ready for whatever it is God has planned for us this afternoon, for this week, for this year. For 20 years from now, 
You may at some point, after you have internalized the Scripture and seen its value, 20 years from now realize, huh, that's why I read that. That's the person that needed that particular truth that God taught me. There are things that I think of even now that I learned when I was a child. And and I hadn't really used much, hadn't really thought much about, and all of a sudden, huh, that's why. That makes sense. I've been equipped for those things. You never know the people that God's Word will need to flow through you to impact. It's also useful in any situation. It's extremely practical for the everyday things of life. The stories, even in the Old Testament, the truths, the precepts, the things that we see throughout the Scripture have huge parallels for us today. And so the Bible is both true and useful. And realizing that, there's only one logical response that we should have. And it includes first to learn it. It's only one logical response. And the first thing is to learn it. If the Scripture is true, if it really is true, and if it really is that useful because it's that true, then we ought to learn it. You may want to write these words off to the side. They won't appear on the screen. But there are just a few words that maybe you say, well, okay, how do I go about learning what the Bible is all about? I'm convinced that no matter what your age today, young, old, or somewhere in between, there are people in this room who don't understand how to learn the Scriptures. I'm no expert. Please don't take it that way. But I want to, to, I want to be fair to you to say I'm not going to assume that everybody in here just knows exactly what to do with the Word of God. Everybody knows exactly how to approach it. And so there, there are some words. Write these words down. First is read. Read. Every day. You say, well, I, I don't understand it. Start somewhere. Read. If you've never read the Bible before, two places I'd tell you to start. One would be in the Gospel of John. He'd give you a synopsis of the life of Jesus and what he was all about. He'll tell you everything that he really was spiritually all about, and he'll give you a pretty good idea of what he did. The second would be in the book of Proverbs. Very practical applications. Very useful sort of things you can take and say, well, Good grief, I don't know how to apply that today. And maybe you'd start with something like that. I read this week, the guy suggested that you count it a wasted day when you aren't learning or enriched by the Scripture. But we count it as a wasted day when we don't make a sale or we don't get up quite on time, we're late to something, or, well, I just didn't really do anything. This guy suggested count it a wasted day when we aren't learning or enriched by the Scripture. Truth is, we ignore the Bible at our own risk. You know, I thought about that there ought to be on the front of the Bible, you know, a a statement, ignore at your own risk. Isn't that the truth? Well, you've probably had times in your life where you've been really into the Bible, and man, it's come alive in your life. And then other times when you've ignored it and you think, well, that was at my own risk because I saw some things and ran into some things. And the truth is we can only operate on the truth that we know, the principles we've been taught and the ones that we have learned. And so have a plan. Read the Bible every day. Bounce back and forth between the Old Testament and New Testament. Read a book from the, from the New Testament. Then go back and read one from the Old Testament. When you, when you look at the Scripture, maybe you'd say, I, I don't quite understand it. Let me, let me help you in choosing a version of the Bible to read. Many of you grew up on a particular version, be that King James or New King James or New International Version or New American Standard. I don't believe that there's any problem with any of those whatsoever. We happen to use one in here that's just very easy and and readable for a large setting like this. But choose one that you can 
read. Choose one that is accurate and readable. Some may say King James is the perfect one for me. Go for it. Some may say the New International Version, that, that's, that's accurate and readable. Go for it. Some may say New American Standard, that's fine. If you've got any questions about that, I'd be happy to answer. I'm not trying to start a war over which one is the best. Jesus didn't read any of those. You realize that? didn't read any of them. He read the Hebrew Old Testament. That's what he had. So if you've got your Hebrew Old Testament, you and Jesus are golden. He didn't read the NIV. He didn't read the King James. He didn't read the New American Standard. He didn't read the New Living Translation. So you pick one that is readable and is accurate. If you got questions about it, I'd be happy to answer them. I don't have all the answers to all those questions, but we'll figure it out. But you find a version of the Bible that you say, you know what, I can get into that. I can read that. Whatever that may be, read it every single day. The second word is study. Reading it is great, but there's a step beyond that to study. One great way you can study the Bible that doesn't take any outside sources is simply to read more than one verse. To look at what's called the context. What happens before, what happens after. That'll give light to those verses. You realize that in Philippians chapter 4, verse 13... There's a famous verse that many of us know. It says, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. Some of you have quoted that before and you faced hard times. Certainly, there is no doubt that that is absolutely true, that no matter what, you can do anything that God wants you to do when he gives you the strength to do it. There's no question. But you realize the context, the verses before that. Paul is talking about how he has been in need. He has been financially hurting. And he has learned what it's like to have a lot. And I have a little. And he says, you know what? I've learned the secret of being content. I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. You realize what the context does to that? It alters the meaning of it. In fact, it reveals the true meaning of certain verses. Read the context. Understand before and after. Look at the cross-references. When you see a little letter out to the side of a verse, look on the margin of your Bible. It may direct you to another verse. Get some resources. I'd be happy to provide you a list of those. Maybe a one-volume commentary or a concordance or a study Bible of some sort. So study. Not only that, but listen. They listen to the apostles' teaching. Listen responsibly. I, I am not an apostle, nor am I Jesus Christ. No surprise to any of you. So when you listen on a regular basis, don't listen critically, but listen responsibly. Meaning that if there is something that is said and you look at that scripture, and you say, well, let me, let me investigate that a little bit more. Listen responsibly and listen regularly, not only to what's preached here on Sunday mornings, but also other times. Maybe you've got another person you enjoy listening to as well. And then the fourth word there is discuss. We have a great small group slash Sunday school ministry. You can discuss the Word of God and get with people that are further along than you and with people that aren't as far along as you in learning the Bible. And so the logical response first is to learn it, and then secondly is to live it. The Bible says that even, it shows us that Satan himself knows the Word of God. He's learned it. He doesn't live it. And therein lies the difference between Christians and Satan. So live it, both proactively, meaning that I'm going to get filled up so that I'm attacking this day with the Word of God. And I am filled up in such a way that I am now encouraged and wherever I go, I'm full of God's word and also reactively. And when something is thrown my way, temptation, anger, whatever it may be, discouragement, difficult people, that I have scripture in my heart, in my mind, I know how to respond. 
And even if you wouldn't consider yourself a Bible person, I'm not so sure about all that. Try it for one week. Look in Proverbs and say, there's a verse in Proverbs chapter 18, verse 21, that says, the tongue has the power of life and death. Try it for one week to give life through what you say. Just try it, even if you're not a Bible person. Even if you say, I don't want anything to do with God, I just showed up because somebody invited me and I'm getting them off my back. Fine. Try it for one week. And just see if the Bible is not true. And see if the Bible is not useful. Once you learn to learn the Bible and to live it out, then as a result, you'll love it even more. And there's not an airline pilot in the world who would intentionally or voluntarily or willfully turn off his aircraft instrumentation and his radio and fly blind and deaf on purpose. And yet, how many times do we go through life just that way? Because we've turned ourselves off to the Scripture. As Christians and as a church, our foundation of spiritual growth and spiritual health is our devotion to the Scripture, and it has to be that. You don't have to go through life blind, never hearing from God, living without the Scripture. Because living without the Scripture, of course, is like taking yourself off of life support. You won't last long, and you won't like the results. So it's true and it's useful. I want to close with this today. I realize that some of us here would say, well, that's great. All I need to hear was, well, hey, go read the Bible again and see what happens. Some of us need to have some Scripture read into our lives today. Some of us need to come face to face with saying, you know, I'm dealing with this particular issue. Do you have a Scripture that can help me? And so I'd like to close with this today. In just a minute, I'll ask you just so we can focus, to to bow your head and to close your eyes, not because I'm going to ask you to pray out loud or to embarrass you in any way, but just so you can focus. And I'm going to mention a couple of different things as I get to these Scriptures. And maybe if that's you, and you say, I'm dealing with that, you just look at the screen and you can read the Scripture right there from your seat as I read it from here. And so if you would, I'd, I'd like for you to join me as we close and just bowing your head and closing your eyes for just a second so you can concentrate. The scriptures that I'll read won't touch every issue in life. We could be here literally all day reading how much God's Word has to say to you. But maybe you're a person this morning who when you hear of one of these topics, you'd look up and you'd read that scripture with me. Maybe you're a person who struggles with anger and you are just overcome by it. And maybe this week your scripture would be Proverbs chapter 29, 11, one that my dad gave me a long time ago. And it says this, a fool gives full vent to his anger, but a wise man holds it in check. Maybe you're experiencing some marriage problems and it's just not quite going the way you thought it would and things are sort of unraveling. And you'd remember Ephesians chapter 5, verse 33, when Paul says to sum up, Each of you is to love his wife as himself. And the wife is to respect her husband. Maybe you're desperate to make a difference in the world. And you really don't know where to start. Matthew 5, 16 says, Let your light shine before men so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. And Philippians 2, 3 says, Do nothing out of rivalry or conceit, but in humility consider others more important than yourselves. 
Maybe you're a person today who just feels like you are buried under a mountain of junk in your life. And it's just awful. And you really don't know what to do. Psalm chapter 40, verses 1 to 3 say this, I waited patiently for the Lord, and He turned to me and heard my cry for help. He brought me up from the desolate pit, out of the muddy clay, and set my feet on a rock, making my steps secure. He put a new song in my mouth, a hymn of praise to our God. Maybe you're facing some hard times. And this week you'd remember Nahum chapter 1, verse 7, The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of distress. He cares for those who take refuge in Him. Maybe you're needing to know what to do in the middle of a difficult situation. God, help me understand James chapter 1, verses 2 through 5. Consider it a great joy, my brothers, whenever you experience various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance, but endurance must do its complete work so that, you're, that you may be mature and complete, lacking nothing. Now, if any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God who gives to all generously and without criticizing, and it will be given to him. Maybe you're experiencing trouble at work, and you hate your job, and you don't like the people you work with, and you don't like your boss or the people that work for you, and you remember Colossians chapter 3, verses 22 to 24. Slaves, obey your human masters in everything. Don't work only while being watched in order to please men, but work wholeheartedly fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, do it enthusiastically as something done for the Lord and not for men, knowing that you will receive the reward of an inheritance from the Lord. You serve the Lord Christ. Or maybe you're having difficulty with your kids and you're feeling like you just wish you weren't a parent right now. Psalm 127 verse 3 say, Sons are indeed a heritage from the Lord. Children are a reward. Proverbs 22.6 says, Teach a youth about the way he should go, and even when he is old, he will not depart from it. Or maybe you're simply a person today who's just feeling a little bit worthless. You just think that I have no value, my life is pointless. And you'd remember Psalm chapter 139, Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I stand up. You understand my thoughts from far away. You observe my travels and my rest. You are aware of all my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, you know about it, Lord. You have encircled me. You have placed your hand on me. Or finally, you may be a person who says, I've realized the truth about God, the truth about me, and the truth about what I need to do to get to God. And you'd say, what must I do to ensure that I am saved from what is sure to be judgment from God? What can I do to be forgiven? The Bible says to repent, turn away from that old life, and to believe in Jesus Christ, and you will, the Bible says, be saved. The foundation of our church must be devotion to the Word of God. We are doomed to fail if we stray from it, if we stray from learning it and living it. And so love for the Scripture must be what distinguishes us. And when people think of us as Elm Grove Baptist Church or us as individuals, may they think of our devotion to learn and to live out what the Bible has to say. Let's pray as we close. Lord, I'm thankful for your word and for how true it is, for how useful it is, for what we can learn about you, learn about us. And thankfully, what we can learn about how to get to you through Jesus Christ. I pray, Lord, that this week would be one of devotion to your word, that we again as a church and as individuals would fall in love with the scripture. That we begin to learn it like never before, to read it, to study, to discuss it, to, to listen to it. And we'd ultimately live it out 
proactively, reactively in every situation in our lives. Or for those who, based upon the word of God this morning, need to simply repent and believe in you for the very first time to have hope and assurance of salvation. And I pray that you give them the courage to do just that. So, Lord, we thank you so much for giving us an entire book about you and how we can get to you and how much you love us. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.